Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome. What an awesome time if you guys uh, got to join us for that day of baptism. Uh, it's just a special time as the family to come together, meet in the backyard, and uh, casually, even as a family, get into the pool and, and dunk one another. You know, that outward expression of what Christ has done in our lives. Put down the old man and come up the new man in Christ. An awesome day. Some neat things going on in our church uh, right now. Uh, this week of prayer, hopefully you guys got to uh, participate with this prayer week in, in some regards. All right, yeah. Uh, Wednesday, we, had, uh, we got to come together for a prayer meeting, time of worship, communion. Um, just an, an awesome time. A lot of neat things going on. I hear last week, um, Rock of Ages uh, we had over 100 people, or right at 100 people. I'm not sure they count 100 people at that event. So it's just awesome to see what's going on. Um, and then last, kind of last day of the week here, day, week of prayer, and it's the weekend of September 11th. So I was thinking, what a great way to end our week of prayer, to start our service. Um, I know I had two relatives on the plane that uh, hit the Pentagon, and I'm sure that's affected a lot of people in this room, and we, and we all know somebody or, or just our country in together. So let's, let's open up our service in prayer um, for the message, for that, what's going on in our church, a lot to be thankful for. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are great. You are worthy of our praise. You are holy, holy, holy. Therefore, we cry out. Lord, we thank you that we get to be baptized. Lord, that we get to go under the old man and come up a new man in you. We thank you for prayer, giving us access, Lord, to you, for communion, for your word, that we get to study it, learn upon it, grow. We thank you for our country. What a privilege and an honor it is to be a part of the United States of America. Lord, we want to lift up those families, those people who serve, who gave the ultimate, their lives, everyone who's been affected, Lord, as we remember what happened on September 11th. Lord, but for today, for right now, our prayer is that Nothing speaks louder to us this morning, Lord, than you. Lord, no one in here, nothing. We want to hear from you clearly this morning. So move aside our distractions. Give us clean hands, Lord. Give us a pure heart, and it is in your Son's name we pray. Amen. We've been in First Timothy for a little while, and, and for the last three weeks we've been in the third chapter. And in the third chapter, we've, we've looked at some qualifications of what an elder is, what a pastor is, and what a deacon is. We've actually gone through, and, and it's gave us a list. This week, we're going to jump over to 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, we're going to see a, a very... Uh, it's woven together where we've been in 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy is addressing more of the, the qualifications individually. Pastor John's told us that those qualifications, yes, are for pastor, elder, and deacons, but he said there's something really we should all be striving for. Those are all like, that's the bar we should set in our lives of, of how we want to look, of what we're trying to become. First Peter takes those same principles, and now he's speaking to the church. He's saying, how should the church, from a lifestyle point of view, this group of people behave how should we act what should it look like so you'll see it you'll see a connection there let's get some context of what's going on in first peter the church still relatively young is under major persecution heavy persecution therefore the church has now been scattered throughout asia minor 
And Peter's writing this letter to, to multiple churches throughout the area. He, he's writing them saying, hang in there. You're suffering. I, I know it. it it's, it's been tough. At this period of time, King Nero was in rule. This was probably the most heinous king recorded in history. And that hatred, that, the, the, his harsh hand was directed towards Christians. It's recorded in, in history that he would literally light the towns, the streets in the towns, by putting Christians on poles and lighting them on fire. He's a bad dude. He, so the church is under major persecution. And, and Peter's saying, all right, hang in there. It's going to be okay. And his first thing he tells them is, remember who you are in Christ, church. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're, you're God's chosen people. He says, hang in there. You're special to me. It's going to be tough. And then he tells them, keep pressing forward. He says, proclaim the one who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. It's a great book, good study. Um, and then in, where we're going to look at is, is chapter 4. And here it, it brings it together. It kind of gives them some marching orders of what it should look like as they move forward. So we'll pick up in verse 7. And it's, a, and it's an interesting way to start off a verse. Verse 7, it says, The end of all things is near. Now every once in a while we hear of a kind of a crazy, wacky religious group that thinks they've figured out some Bible code and, and they figured out the date when Christ is going to return. So they sell everything they own and they go sit on top of the hillside and, and they wait Christ's return. Is, is that what Peter's talking about here? The end of all things is near. What does that mean? This text was written some 2,000 years ago. So, so I thought, well, I'll look this up in the Greek and the Hebrew. I want to dig into this. And I found out that it means exactly what it says. The end of all things is near. It, it means that God has given us time. He's given us space for now. But there is coming a time when there will be no more time. Everything will be in the eternal present. The end of all things is near. The word end doesn't necessarily mean termination. It doesn't mean the final conclusion. But rather, for, as believers, we know that it, it, it speaks to more of the fulfillment. The goals achieved, the purpose is going to be obtained. It's the second coming of Christ. He's not merely speaking to the end of our short lives here on earth. It's, he's referring to the fulfillment, what it says, of all things, indicating the Lord's return. Now we must remember that, that the Lord doesn't count days and years like we count them. And I think that comes to a surprise to us. Because we think that really any day would be a great day for the Lord to return. It's interesting. The end of all things is near. We know that everything contained in the Bible is 100% absolute truth. So, so if this was accurate when it was written, back to the apostles and the disciples, then that means it should even be more pressing to us today. That as a church today, we should live with far greater expectancy. See, what Peter's doing here is he, he's setting the stage. He's giving us a context for what he's going to teach us this morning. He's saying how we, the church, should go about carrying out our lifestyle. And as believers, as the church, we are to live with an ongoing attitude of anticipation, of, of zeal, with expectancy, with a conscious importance that we have a purpose. We are to take hold of every day, take hold of every moment. Now, God chooses, chooses not to give us the exact time or the date. Acts 1.7 says, It's not for you to know the time or the dates which the Father has fixed by His own authority. 
The author of Hebrews encouraged his readers, keep meeting together, encourage one another, because the day of Christ's return is drawing near. Now, can you imagine if we knew the exact time and day when God was going to return? The the Bible does want us to keep focused on the hope of his return, but he chose not to reveal the actual date, right? We're humans. If we knew the date and it was really far off, let's be realistic, we'd grow complacent. We'd probably lose motivation. Oh, it's 287 years away. And on the flip side, if we knew that it was going to be in two weeks, we'd probably go into a forensic panic and, and go crazy. So, so it's interesting. Peter says it's near. It's intimate. Keep focus. But he takes away both extremes. Don't become socially inept and drop out of society. Don't try to figure out Bible codes and do all this. On the same token, don't stand on the sideline and be complacent. It's, there's a balance as we as a church, how we are to live in these end times. It's near. We've been in those last few days for the past 2,000 years. Don't be extremely, drop out of society, but then don't be passive on the sidelines. Luke 12, 35 says, be dressed in readiness. It says, keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns, so that they may immediately open the door to him. It says, live your life with that focus. We need to be ready, church, the Rock Community Church. Live, commune together, fellowship together with the understanding that we will stand before Christ and we'll give an account for our lives. Live with the focus in mind that the Lord will reward those who were good. He will assess our effectiveness, our dedication, our faithfulness. He will assess our, our devotion. He's going to look at our heart while we serve him here. He's saying a realization of that future reality ought to instill within every believer a desire for ongoing purity, for holiness. That's the stage. The end of all things is near. He goes on, therefore. He's going to teach us three principles we're going to look at today. Because the end is near. Because we, the church, are standing on the edge of eternity. He says, therefore, he's going to give us three things. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That's number one. He says, be in prayer. Now, I don't know about you. I, I find it so interesting. All this talk about urgency, all this talk about the end of all things is near, and he tells us to start with prayer. That's not my natural reaction. If I know I'm under a timeline, I want to start with action. I, I want to start with, with doing something. So often, our, that's our tendency. If I knew I had 90 days to live, my natural tendency would be to get busy. But Peter says, action isn't where we should start. Prayer is where we must begin. There may be some action God wants you to take, but it's not where he wants you to begin. He wants you to start in prayer. Why do we begin in prayer? Because godly actions come from prayer. Come from aligning ourselves with what God wants to us. Not run about and expel our, our energy and expel our lives and various activities, which we're so good filling them up with. Because in reality, most of that stuff will have no lasting effect. Therefore, we ought to begin with prayer. Prayer is what's going to change our attitude. Prayer is what's going to change our heart. Prayer is what's going to change our circumstances. And Peter says the first priority, because the end is near, because you're on the edge of eternity, he says to pray. In fact, not merely pray, he says prayer, an ongoing, a habit, continual in everything. 
like this last week as a church. It's a sign of spiritual maturity for believers. When we can see God in everything, when, when we can relate everything in life to God, even the most casual and mundane aspects of our lives, relate them to God in prayer. Well, what is prayer? We learned that on Monday if you've been getting those emails through this week. Prayer, is, it's simple. It's communication with God. God wants us to realize that we are totally dependent upon Him. He wants us to come to the reality that every breath we, we breathe is given to us by Him. He wants us to ask Him about everything. So often we get prayer backwards. We think we need to pray and, and so, so we can tell God where we're at and we can kind of give instructions to God to what we need from Him. And, and, and I think we're trying to move God over to us. In reality, when we pray, we want to understand who God is and where we are and then move ourselves over to God. Your will be done. What do you want from me? That's what prayer is. It's dependence upon God for all of life. It's physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, let's face it. For the most part, life's an extreme mystery to man. Most things in our lives are way outside of our control. But prayer glorifies God because it acknowledges our weakness, our insufficiency. Not to pray, in effect, is asserting our own sufficiency and our arrogance that we're acting on our own. So Peter, he mentions two qualities about prayer. Both have to do with control. First one, he says, for prayer, be of sound judgment. Be of the right mind. Be under control. And he says, be of sober spirit. Don't be carried away, uh, too much emotions, uncontrolled passions. Our minds must be clearly fixed on the spiritual priorities. Clearly fixed on righteous living. Not caught up in self-indulgence. Not caught up in this deceptive world that's so heavily influenced by Satan. When our minds are subject to Christ and his words, that's when we begin to see things from a spiritual perspective, an eternal perspective. Therefore, he says, be of sound judgment. Sound judgment, it's the opposite of being insane. It's the same word we see when Jesus expelled the legion of demons from a man. After he did this, the man was sitting there, and the Bible records, he was seated and in his right mind. Sound judgment, it's the same word. To have sound judgment is to think sanely, realistically. It's to make judgments based upon truth and re reality rather than falsehood, deception, or a distorted perception. We saw this word in 1 Timothy 3, 2 when it was talking about the qualifications of elders. It says sensible, same word. You see it in Titus 1, 8 talking about elders. Or in Timothy is prudent and Titus is sensible. It points to a man who's level-headed, who's not impulsive, who's not swayed by fluctuating emotions. Sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. It's a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sober means more than not being intoxicated by liquor. It means that, that we, when we enter into prayer, should be self-alert. We should have self-control. He's saying, don't be drunk with worry. Don't be drunk with anxiety or intoxicated with fear. Have clarity of mind that will give the resulting good judgment. And that marks a person who's not drunk. The opposite of the word uh, sober is to sleep. Think about Peter's connection here. He knew about praying and sleeping. He was in the garden with Jesus. Jesus asked him to pray. What did he do? He fell asleep. He wasn't sober. And as a result, he fell into temptation. And he fell into sin. The message in this first thing is prayer. He says, be of sober spirit for prayer as we, the church, see our enemy prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. 
We should soberly perk up our spiritual ears, perk up our spiritual eyes. We should be in prayer for both ourselves and, and for one another. I think we all know that in seasons of life, our lives can seem like they're going out of control. Things are coming apart at, at the seams. It's completely chaotic, but we must remember, from God's point of view, nothing is out of control. He's a sovereign God. When it seems like life's going out of control, he's saying, that's when you be driven to prayer. Come to me in prayer. Be of sound judgment and a sober spirit. One reflects to our emotional life. The other reflects to our intellectual life. But both have to do with control for the purpose of prayer because the end of all things is near. In Matthew, Jesus warned the apostles, be on the alert. Keep watch. Godly thinking and, and spiritual alertness are critical for the purpose of prayer. Prayers are access to all spiritual resources. And we can't pray right when our minds are crazy, when they're unfocused, when our minds are in worldly pursuit, or when we're ignorant or indifferent to God's Word, when we're mentally unfocused from our spiritual purpose. The end of all things is near. You're on the edge of eternity. Therefore, we should start with prayer. And we need a clear mind to do so. Second priority we see in verse 8. He says you also need a love. In fact, it says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Another interesting way to start off a verse, above all. I mean, does this put love against prayer? As, as if we can choose love and, and we can neglect prayer? I don't think so. I think uh, Peter's calling our attention to the priority of love for fellow Christians. He's saying that's a central part of the Christian faith. We see it throughout the whole Bible. Jesus said that love for one another, that's his new commandment. Love for one another is the mark by which the world will know that we are his followers. Paul told the Corinthians, you can have all the spiritual gifts, all of them. You can have all the faith, but without love, you're nothing. Love, it is so important. Loving our neighbor is only second in the Bible to loving God. Loving our neighbor is the tangible evidence that we do love God. So the, the word love here, you've probably heard of agape love. It's, it's God's love. That's how it translates in the Greek. There's four types of love um, in, the, in the Greek, and this one's agape. It means that we love no matter what the response of our love is. We keep on loving regardless if we love somebody and they, you know, they don't love us back or they don't like us back, they're not nice to us. We keep loving them. Agape love. I can just imagine... The churches that Peter is writing to, in this time, with this persecution and suffering, the tremendous turmoil that was going on in their church. He's saying, love one another, church. Can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine the problems that were created among them? He says, love. And, and I think that's why he says them to have a fervent love for one another. This word suggests an earnestness, an intensity. Think of a pot that is on the verge of boiling over. It's a fervent love. The term means basically to be stretched out. We see it a lot in Greek literature. It refers to an athlete straining to reach the finish line, stretching all out, fully committed, maximum effort. It's like 110%, literally on the verge of pulling a muscle. And as 
We see, as the church, the Lord's coming drawing near. We should exert ourselves in love for one another. Love. It's an, it's an interesting concept. If we look into this, it shows us that love is an action, that we actually need to exert ourselves in it. It's more than just an emotion. It implies that this isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Rather, it's a sustained, strenuous effort. He's saying, church, go out of your way. Work hard at it to love one another. Exert yourself. The fact that love can be commanded shows that it's primarily an action, not emotion. You can't command an emotion. Emotions come and go. But he says this should be ongoing. It should be day-to-day. It should be consistent. It should be what the church looks like as a lifestyle. Christians are to have that type of lifestyle and stretching out in love for one another. Just as a runner stretches out with all his strength for the tape at the finish line. It's agape love. The self-sacrificing love that cost the giver. And we need love. I need love. I'm in the process of maturing in Christ, and so are you. So therefore, we need love. We need to be patient with one another. And what's great is I've seen this kind of love in our congregation. Love that goes out of its way to love somebody. Love that covers a multitude of sin. It's been said, I I found a quote, it says that sometimes biblical love is more sweat than sweet. I thought that was interesting. It involves effort. Peter's saying, be conscious of it. Love covers a multitude of sin. It's important. But what does that mean? Love covers a multitude of sin. Peter's not alluding to something that love does for us. Love does not atone for our sins, but it overlooks the sin of others. I think we all know it's fairly easy to love somebody who doesn't sin against us. But biblical love extends to even those who wrong us. Love doesn't allow shortcomings. It doesn't allow failures of others to keep us from loving them. Love, this type of love, is an action for us. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love keeps on loving. It's interesting. In our life, we have limitations in almost every area. We have limitations intellectually, limitations socially, limitations physically. But in Christ, there is no limit to our capacity for growth in love. And we are commanded to love people, God's people, even people we may not like. Peter knew that we weren't inclined to like everyone. That's why in in mentioning the specific duty of love, I think he goes on and, as we saw, it says, and be hospitable to one another and do so without complaint. Hospitable is another word we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, describing an elder. And Pastor John mentioned it's a compound word. It has two root words, and the first one is friend, and the other one is strange. You put those together, you have hospitable. Literally means to be a friend to a stranger. Pretty simple. He's saying, be a church that doesn't have an inside circle and outside circle. Love one another in such a way where you don't have an A group or a B group. But be a church where there's no initiation. It doesn't matter how long you've been there, how much you serve, how old or how young you are, but be hospitable. It's friends to everyone. It's challenging us. Be people who are intentional to love to go out and, and meet people we don't know. Shake their hands. Welcome them. Invite them. 
What a great challenge for us as a church. So that is the second thing he wants us to know. The first one is that the, the end of all things is near. We're standing on the edge of eternity, so we need to pray. And then he says, after you pray, love one another. Be fervent in it. In fact, go out of your way to be a friend, a stranger, and do it all without complaint. And we're going to see the, the third thing he's going to give us here, and, and it is to serve. Verse 10, it's a powerful verse. It, it is packed with stuff. Let's read it together. It says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. See, what Peter's talking about here, he's, he's mentioning spiritual gifts, not just natural enablements. But God has given to every member of his family, when they've become family members, a spiritual gift. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ in a personal way at least has one spiritual gift. It's a capacity given to you by the Holy Spirit to minister to the needs of other believers. Look at verse 10. There's, there's so much in here. It says, as each one, each one, every single one who is in Christ has received a spiritual gift. No believer is included. Every Christian has divinely been gifted for service. Says so each one has, has received. It's already been done. You have received. If you are in Christ, you possess the spiritual gift. It's inside of you. I love the word that it's a special gift. Each one has received. It's done. A special gift. Not just a gift, but a special gift that has been created and fashioned just for you. So often I think we undervalue that. And so often it's easy to get in church and be like, man, that's awesome what he does or she does. I wish I could do that. I want to do that. But it's saying, I, he's made the special gift just for you. I don't need to look like him and you don't need to look like her. And all, it, We're all specially needed. It's a special gift. It's been given to us literally like a snowflake. I mean, right? If God can make snowflakes, everyone unique, if he can make our thumbprints or fingerprints, or, or retinas in our eyes, all unique. He can do it with spiritual gifts. It's as if God dips his, his paintbrush into multiple colors, or categories, or gifts, and he paints you uniquely. And not only does he give you the spiritual gift, but he also gives us the faith along with that gift to exercise it. If you will turn into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, we'll start in verse 14. It starts off, says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, Because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one body where, or one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we have bestowed more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become 
much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there, were, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. I remember uh, my first job, I was working for my dad in a, in a, a wood mill, and I was milling wood. And, and a big, heavy lumber, running it through a machine that had an automatic feed, so you'd feed it in. And I jammed my thumb. And I, I didn't break it or anything, but I jammed it so bad that I couldn't move it, and it was tender to the touch. I mean, where tender, where it's like anything would kill it. It took about two weeks for it to heal. And I just remember thinking during, during that time, I, I've never been that appreciative of my thumb. I, I've never, no one ever said, man, Rob, that's great, your thumb is awesome. It was, just, it was just there. But I'll tell you, when I hurt my thumb, I was out of, I couldn't do anything. I, I, I couldn't put on my shoes. I couldn't tie my shoes, pull up my pants, button my pants, put my seatbelt on, turn my key, hold, hold a pencil. And I'm thinking, thinking that is so crazy. Right? I've, I've done all these things in life, but I've never gave any credit to my thumb. It's just a thumb. And I'm thinking, this little thumb, and God even gave me two of them. And I'm just hurt, one's hurt. And it, it, it's, it's taken all my effectiveness out of life. That's what he's saying here. The thumb can't say to the other thumb, I don't need you. Or the eye can't say to the ear, or the foot can't say to the mouth, or you can't say to them, and, and vice versa. He's, he's saying, even those less honorable things, I need you. Rob came to a standstill because my thumb was missing. And as a church body, some of you are the thumbs. And we need you. And you need us. There's a body for us to function appropriately, for us to be effective for the kingdom. We need the thumb and the hand and the ears and the mouth and everything else. It says each one has received a special gift. Everyone in Christ has been given a gift special to serve other family members. And he goes on and says, employ it. He's saying, these gifts I've given you, they're designed by God to be used. In fact, as believers who have received a special gift, we should build our lives around using our, special, our, our, our gifts. He says, employ it. Literally, you are a custodian of it, a manager, a warden, a distributor. You are a supervisor and an overseer. Think of a boss. It's an employer-employee relationship. You have been given a gift, and now you're the employer of it. Any good employer, if they have an employee, would make sure that employee is on task, is working diligently, is going in the right direction. He's saying that's your responsibility. Employ it. Use it. This means as Christians, we must discover our gifts. We must uncover our gifts. We must develop our gifts and then use our gifts. And do it to the greatest possible extent. It says employ it in serving one another, not forwarding it over to one another. Here we are as the church. We're living on the edge of eternity. He says, be in prayer, love, and serve Serve one another. Direct your gift towards the body. 
And when we employ our gifts in serving one another, we'll do so where it mutually benefits the church. Now the flip side, non-use of your spiritual gifts, it will adversely affect the body. Just like the thumb. To serve the body as good stewards. What's a good steward? It's somebody that knows it's not ours. It's just been given to us to use. Good stewards are those who not only manage their spiritual gifts wisely, but they also use them obediently. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, saying this multifaceted, manifold, multifaceted gift, it comes from God. It's not anything we deserve. It's through God's grace. It's a result of what God's done for us. These gifts, they can't be passed out. They can't be earned. They can't be prayed for. They can't be generated. They're not deserved. They're not entitled to us. They're simply gifts. It may be hard to identify, to categorize your unique gift, but the important part is that you make it available to the Holy Spirit. You make it available to the the body of Christ. I think when it comes to serving in the church, it can get difficult. We we get the mindset, well, I want to serve, I just don't know where to serve. I would like to be more involved, I don't know if now's the right time. I I feel like, you know, I could really make an impact. I I used to help out in this area. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm gifted enough. Right? We, we, we go on back and forth. And it's interesting. Talk to people who serve in our church. Ask them, how did it start? And, and for the most part, well, I was sitting there one week and I just realized I just got involved with one thing and now it's led into... And that's how it all starts. And that's what we're called to do. And I love what Peter does in this next section. He, he takes all those complicated thoughts of going back and forth and not being sure and how sophisticated we make serving. He breaks it down so beautifully simple. He says, whoever serves, verse, verse 11, or whoever speaks is to do so as one who speaks the utterance of God. Who, whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies. Peter simply divides up gifts into two major broad categories. He says there's the gift of speaking, which includes teaching, evangelism, encouragement, wisdom, and knowledge, and others. And there's gifts of service, which are such as mercy, administration, helps, and giving. He's saying both of these are necessary in the church. Both of them are equally as important one to another. Peter simply says, if you're going to speak, if you're going to teach in any way, do so by the oracles of God. Base your message, your words, upon God's word. And he talks about the power in which we do so. If you're going to serve, whoever serves, Let him do so by the strength which God, not us, not our pride, not our ego, but by which God supplies. The power of our ministry is the Spirit of God. It's the indwelling of Christ. And Peter says it's that simple. That's all we need to carry on a fruitful and effective ministry to others. Your teaching, it might be in a large group. It it might be in a small group. It might be on a one-on-one basis. It might be in your home. You're serving, it could be in a large way where, where a lot of people see it. It could be in a small way that is very unnoticeable. He's saying, whatever we do, do it according to the Scriptures. 
Whatever you do, do it according to the power of the Spirit of God that indwells in you. Some people, I believe, and and I've wrestled with this myself, they don't like to point out their spiritual gifts. And we have good reason for that because we think we're trying to be humble. I don't really want to point it out. I just, it seems weird. I'll just be more humble and quiet about it. But according to God's word, that's not humility. In fact, according to God's word, it's robbing from God. It's robbing from God the glory that he would receive by us using our gift. Demonstrating our gifts is not a lack of humility. You know why? Because it's not a skill. It's a gift that he's given you. So I ask you, how are you using your gifts to bless the body of Christ? Where are you using your gifts to serve others in the church? And if you're not right now, that's okay. In our church and in our community, there's, there's a lot of places we can get involved. Just right here, we have, we have opportunities to serve for any age group. We, we can accommodate just about any schedule. We have a lot of different areas, and we have a lot of needs of things we're not even doing yet. Some current areas that we do have needs for is nursery, children's, prayer team, ushers, tech team, media, parking, greeting, meals, hospitality, worship, physical service, and we could go on and on. Brent Slazak, uh, may, maybe you know him, a couple years ago he said it's something interesting to me and it's stuck. We were talking, he says, you know, so often it seems like church is a football game. Okay. Yeah, it's like there's you know, a stadium, you got 50,000 people in the stadium and they're all watching 22 people play. He's saying, yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy. And Peter's saying, I, that's not what it should be. That's not how the church should be structured. It's not like an organization where we come in and and do this. But it is a group of us, a body coming together to to learn about Christ and serve in one another and impact this community. Have you ever thought, what is the purpose of all this? Kind of take a curve here, huh? But have you ever thought about that? Why do we do all this? What's the purpose of our lives? Why should I be urgent? Okay, the end is rolling near. So why should I be urgent? Why should I pray? Why should I, why, should I, why should I serve? Why should I love in such a way where it cost me? It so goes against the grain of how we're wired as humans. Why, why do we do all this? Peter answers that question next. He says, you know, I don't know why. Look at the rest of that verse 11. So that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. That is it. That is the main idea of this message. That is the point. It's the chief end of of man. What a great reason, what a great purpose to live. To glorify God through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. That is our goal. That is our purpose. That is the reason we fulfill our duty in the midst of this hostile world, so that God may be glorified. Everything we do, should, should, the desire should be to glorify God. Whether we're eating or, or, or socializing or, or going to our kids' sporting events, whatever it is, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whenever then you eat and drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. I remember in second grade, I was eight years old, and uh, my parents got a divorce that year. And I, I learned a harsh lesson of divorce as a young kid, that divorce causes all kinds of trouble, more than just with mom and dad. I had a grandma, my mom's mom. Uh, she lived in Yorba Belinda. We lived in Yorba Belinda. And before, the, before that time, I probably see her three to four times a week. And after they got a divorce, it grew distant from her. Probably within four years, by the time I was 12, I really hardly ever saw her again. Uh, maybe from then on, I've probably seen her five times. And, and I, I look back and I remember at that point making a conscious decision. Then you know what? It's fine if I don't see her anymore. I have other things I want to do. I, and I remember thinking, I'm a little bittered about everything that went on. I just didn't like the situation, and I made a conscious decision. I'm just going to go do my own thing. And then I remember specifically, as a Friday night, May 16th, 2003, I get the call from my mom. And I don't talk to her much either. And she says, Robert, you need to go to Placentia Linda Hospital. Your grandma's in there, and she's not doing well. They don't think she's going to make it through the night. So I go over there, and... Uh, I get permission to go back into the room, and I knock on the door, open the door, and I see my grandma. I think, man, she, she doesn't look good. She doesn't look like she's going to make it through the night. So I start walking up to her, and my grandma speaks out to me and says, you know, I love you, honey. And this is, again, probably in 10, 12 years, I've seen her five times. So I walk up, and I grab her hand. And as I'm walking into this room, coming up to her, grabbing her hand, I'm thinking, man, the guilt and the shame is on me, thinking, what are, what? What have you done? I just remember grabbing her hand, reaching down, giving her a hug, and, and, and my, our cheeks were meeting. And, and at that time, I told her, I love you. But at that time, I was paralyzed, just thinking, gosh darn it, I've missed it. I, I missed it all. I'm sitting here, I'm telling you I love you, but I haven't shown you a thing. And I'll tell you at that point, and maybe you can relate, you have some, a loved one that you've gone through this with too, I would have traded any of those things I consciously was trying to obtain during that time to not just tell her I loved her, but to show her that I loved her. Through that experience, I think I understand what Peter's telling us here as a church. He's saying, the end of all things is near. You're standing on the edge of eternity, church. You're my bride. You have a purpose. I've specially created you. Be in prayer for one another. I give you every breath you draw. He's saying, the sun's going to burn out. This world's going to burn up. Prayer, love, and serve me. If you're embittered, repent. If you're in sin, Ask for forgiveness. Turn. If somebody's in the church has hurt you, forgive them. Saying the end of all things is, is near. There's an urgency. It's, it's not going to be ugly or pretty. It could be very ugly. Don't lose focus. We will stand before an almighty God and we have been given spiritual gifts I've asked Anthony if you kind of come on forward to close us in a song. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, and we're going to turn it into, we have decided to follow Jesus. And during this time, I would 
love for us as a church body with, with urgency, with that focus, to spend this time praying with one another, worshiping one another, loving with one another. So we'll sing this song. Oh, look at it. We've never... I heard John say about five years ago that his dream was to have a choir at the Rock Community Church. So this is going to be our first uh, weekend with a choir. You are all now officially um, invited to join the choir. And uh, as we sing this, uh, just as, as a body of Christ, sing into an almighty God. We have decided to follow Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, that we wouldn't lose focus of what this life that you've given us all is all about. Lord, that we would decide as individuals, that we would decide as families, as couples, as singles people, as a church, as ministries, to follow you. Lord, that we would become so set on that that there would be no turning back. Lord, so we understand that we need each other. We can't do this on our own. Lord, foster relationships. Give us hearts of love. Let us be warm for one another. Give us cool heads for the purpose of prayer. Let this be a place where people can serve. Lord, and let it all be done to the glory of your name. To God, through Jesus Christ, who belongs and deserves all the glory and dominion forever and ever. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. Love you. We'll see you next weekend.